0: Thank you. And, uh, thank you very much, Father Philip Neri, for the invitation uh, to present to you here today. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you and getting your feedback. I was particularly drawn into this topic by uh, reading Aquinas's, what I'm calling in this paper, Aquinas's simplicity argument and fearing that, uh, well, it did something that uh, our, uh, our previous speaker, Dominic, was pointing out about some of these other other Thomas, that maybe this argument proved too much for Aquinas' own purposes. And I look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say after this presentation. <clears throat> Why cannot names be predicated univocally of God and creatures? God is too simple, both metaphysically and conception. Thomas Aquinas appeals to divine simplicity in the very first argument against predicating something univocally about God and other things at Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, chapter 32. The argument begins from the premise that a cause and its effect can only receive univocal predication of a form that the effect receives from the cause if the effect receives the form according to a likeness similar to that through which the agent cause acted. But a likeness of divine power does not pass over into God's effects because what is simple and universal in God is received divisibly and particularly in the effect. Hence, nothing can be said univocally about God and other things. Besides the divine simplicity, the aforementioned argument also assumes, A, that the foundation for learning about and naming God is the likeness of creatures to God as their efficient cause, and B, that univocal predication involves some sort of similarity of form between the cause and the effect. This particular argument only specifies what kind of similarity of form suffices for univocity through counterexamples. The heat of the sun is not univocal to the heat of fire generated by the sun, and things made by God which are particular and divisible are not univocal to God who is universal and simple. Now the example of the sun's heat points the reader to Aquinas' understanding of generic similarity or unity. The sun's heat and fire's heat do not fall under the same genus, due to their diversity in mode of being. Fire's heat is corruptible, and the sun's heat is incorruptible, like the sun itself. And as Aquinas indicates in many places following Aristotle, the corruptible and the incorruptible do not belong to the same genus. That is, while the corruptible and incorruptible may share in the same genus vis-a-vis logical intentions, they do not share in the same genus from the perspective of the sciences that consider things according to their very being, such as physics and metaphysics, hence, While logic would divide the genus of substance into material and immaterial substances, as Porphyry does in his isagoge, metaphysics would not regard separate substances and material substances as belonging to one genus of substance. And while logic would allow the genus of body to divide into the corruptible and the incorruptible, physics would not acknowledge a genus containing both corruptible and incorruptible bodies. From these points, we can recognize how the doctrine of divine simplicity informs Aquinas' restrictions on the use of univocity in metaphysics. The divine simplicity rules out any sameness and way of being between God and other things. Sameness in way of being is required for sameness in genus from the perspective of sciences that consider their object's way of being. Sameness in genus is the minimum way of satisfying the requirement for univocity. Hence, the divine simplicity rules out univocity between God and creatures from the perspective of metaphysics. In effect, Aquinas is saying that although the science of logic abstracts from consideration of an object's way of being, which permits logic to unite in thought objects that lack such unity in reality, God's simple way of being obstructs univocity between God and creatures as they are considered in metaphysics. In what follows, I will explore how Aquinas develops his opening line of argumentation against univocity between God and creatures in his third and fourth arguments in Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, chapter 32. Then I will turn for assistance with the passage to the great 16th century Dominican commentator on the Summa Contra Gentiles, Francis Sylvester of Ferrara. St. Thomas's third argument in the Summa Contra Gentiles 132 develops a point that is implicit in his first argument, namely the connection between univocity and the five predicables. Accordingly, I will label this argument the predicables argument. The fourth argument takes the first argument's point about the divine simplicity and moves it beyond the rejection of natural or metaphysical univocity to the the denial of even logical univocity. I label this argument the simplicity argument. Francis Silvestri's commentary on the two arguments is primarily aimed at addressing Scotist objections and secondarily at addressing inter-Thomist disagreements, which are themselves products of Thomas-Scotist polemics. I will propose that Francis Silvestri makes a helpful contribution to the Thomas Scotus debate by showing the internal consistency of St. Thomas's position. I also propose that Francis Silvestri's commentary directs us towards foundational points where the debate between the schools needs to go, despite or even due to Francis Silvestri's own apparent lack of knowledge of Scotus's own position on some of these foundational points. So I turn now to the predicables argument in the Summa Contradentiles, book one, chapter 32. The argument runs as follows, and I believe that this is text one on your handout. Everything which is predicated univocally about many either is a genus or a species or a difference or an accident or a property. However, nothing is predicated about God as a genus or as a difference as has been shown above. Consequently, neither is something predicated about God as a definition nor even as a species which is constituted from a genus and a difference. Nor can something be accidental to God, as has been demonstrated above, and so nothing is predicated about God as either an accident or property, for property belongs to the genus of the accidents. It remains, therefore, that nothing is predicated univocally about God and other things. The argument is an Epikyremia. The major premise affirms that all things predicated of many univocally are one of the five predicables. The minor premise denies that any things can be predicated of God as one of the five predicables, and the proofs for the minor premise appeal to the conclusions of arguments found in Summa Contra Gentile's Book One, Chapters 23 through 25. The fact that Thomas offers any proofs for the minor premise, while simply laying down the major premise, indicates for us that Thomas did not anticipate the need to defend the major premise, at least as it pertains to the univocity that includes the way of being. For the purposes of bringing to greater, bringing to greater light the metaphysical character of the predicables argument, I note here from Summa Contra Gentile's book one, chapter 25, that the reason why God cannot be in a genus, even in the genus of substance, is that something is placed in a genus through the ratio of its quiddity, and the quiddity of God is God's own essay. But in that case, for God to be placed in a genus, the genus would have to be being, yet being is not a genus, so God is not in any genus. Aquinas goes on in the passage to explain why being is not a genus, giving the argument that a genus is contractible to species through its differences, whose rationes do not include the ratio of the genus, that they are differentiating. But since nothing can be outside of what is understood through being, no difference can contract being. Consequently, being is not a genus. Summa Contra gentiles, Book 1, Chapter 25, concludes by considering the argument that because a substance is a being per se and God is a being per se, it follows that God is a substance. Aquinas denies such an argument's validity on the grounds that being per se is a negative attribution. It does not say what a substance is, but only what a substance is not. And so being per se does not define substance as a genus. Aquinas proposes instead that the genus of substance should be defined as what has quiddity to which it belongs to be, not in another. And this does not apply to God because God has no quiddity distinct from God's essence. Although the argument that God cannot be in a genus appeals to matters of second intention, such as the need for a difference as ratio to be outside of the ratio of the genus, so as to prevent the genus from appearing twice in the definition of the species, the force of the argument rests primarily upon its distinctly metaphysical claims about the divine simplicity, including the identity of essence and existence in God in contrast to their composition and creatures. Accordingly, the predicables argument need only be taken to rule out the kind of univocity that includes the mode of being and not to rule out the restrictively logical university, which abstracts from the mode of being. Aquinas' next argument, which I call here the simplicity argument, closes that, logical, closes that opening to logical university for names set of God and creatures. For this reason, I regard it as a key argument, separating Thomas Aquinas' position from the position developed by John Duns Scotus. According to Scotus, The lack of metaphysical univocity between God and creatures does not stand in the way of a logical univocity through a concept that is common to God and creatures. So here is the simplicity argument. Again, whatever is predicated univocally about many things is at least conceptually simpler than each of them. Now, nothing can be simpler than God, either really or conceptually. Therefore, nothing is predicated univocally about God and other things. The major premise affirms that all things predicated univocally of many are simpler conceptually than those things of which they are predicated. The minor adds that nothing is simpler than God even conceptually, hence nothing is predicated univocally about God and other things. Among Aquinas' arguments in the Summa Contra Gentiles against predicating names univocally of God and creatures, this argument stands out for directly addressing the conceptual order and maintaining that the lack of univocity extends even to the order of understanding. And so analogy between God and creatures is not distinctive to the perspective of the metaphysician, but even belongs to the logician. Turn now to insight from Francis Silvestri's commentary on the Summa Contra Gentiles. <laughs> In my text here, I go back and forth between referring to this fellow as Francis Silvestri and the Latin name Ferrariensis. It's easier to say Francis Silvestri than Ferrariensis, so I'll probably be doing that more often. Of course, it's more fun to say Ferrariensis, so we'll see what it is that I do. Okay, the commentaria Ferrariensis on the Summa Contra Gentiles 132 begins with the clarification of terms. When Thomas Aquinas speaks of Innovoce Predicari, Thomas is following Aristotle's definition of univocals in the categories, which Ferrariensis glosses as The same thing is predicated univocally, which belongs to many, according to altogether one and the same ratio. Notice that this is not the definition of univocity that uh, came up in our previous uh, uh, presentation by Dominic. Fauriensis proceeds to go through the arguments one by one, raising and answering objections along the way. Notably for this article's purposes, Ferrariensis observes that Aquinas' first arguments in the the chapter rely upon a sense of univocity in which the univocals share the same ratio, both secundum formem et secundum ascendi modo, both according to form and according to mode of being. Highlighting Aquinas' example of the house in the mind of the architect, having an immaterial mode of being in contrast to the house in matter. Fauriansis also offers an explanation as to why a difference in mode of being causes difference in species. Quote, for it is manifest that a perfection which in a cause is one essence and one nature with every other perfection is not of the same species with a perfection that is limited and distinct from other perfections. For one has a greater essential perfection than the others, which makes a specific distinction," He provides a non-theological example to illustrate the point, which I'm very grateful. He says, quote, for the sensitive soul in the human is distinguished according to species from the sensitive soul in the brute, because in the human, it is essentially more perfect, since there is also in the essence of the intellective soul something that does not belong to the brutes. Unquote. Moreover, Ferrariensis specifically considers the question of whether the initial argument in Summa Contradentiles 132 addresses logical univocity, and he concludes that it doesn't. When he arrives at the predicables argument, Ferrariensis notes that Scotus denies the consequence. That is, Scotus denies that from the fact that nothing is predicable of God as a genus, species, difference, property, or accident, that it would follow that nothing is predicated univocally about God. Noting that if being could be any of the predicables, it would have to be a genus, ferriensis cites Scotus' sentence commentary in distinction, in Book 1, Distinctions 3, and Distinction 8. For Scotus' arguments that, A, being is said univocally of God and creatures, and B, that being cannot be a genus, because it is predicated quiditatively of differences and no genus is predicated of a difference. In the paragraphs that follow, Ferrariensis takes issue with SCOTUS's position on multiple fronts. First, Ferrariensis addresses SCOTUS's inference that being cannot be a genus by affirming against SCOTUS that being can be predicated of differences. Secondly, and more significantly for this article's purposes, Ferrariensis argues that if being were univocal, then being would be a genus after all, despite Scotus's claims to the contrary. Ferrariensis constructs the argument on two premises that he judges to be from the very foundation of the concept of a genus, and which together serve as conditions for being a genus. First, he lays down what I call here the abstraction condition, stating that a genus expresses a certain nature that is abstractable by the intellect from its inferiors and from every limiting principle that would contract it to a species. I believe that I have this on the the handout on the first page these two conditions for a genus just point of reference for you. Second, he lays down what I call here the essential difference condition, which affirms that a genus is really contracted to a species through a difference that belongs to the intrinsic constitution of the essence of the species. Virius illustrates with the example of the genus animal and its contraction to the human species. The definition substantia animata sensibilis does not express any particular species of animal, but it is instead obstructable from all animals, and the difference, rational, that contracts the genus animal to human is intrinsic to the human essence. So it meets both conditions for being a genus. The next step in Ferroiancis's case against Scotus is to show that if being is univocal, then being will also meet the above two conditions and being would be a genus. According to Ferroiancis, Scotus himself is committed to the position that if being is univocal, that Uh, being meets the abstraction condition. For Fariensis, the dispute hinges on whether if being is univocal, it is contracted through differences that are intrinsic to the essences of the things of which it is predicated univocally, and thereby would meet the essential difference condition. Fariensis argues that it would have to be. Because being is what is most common, being will either be limited by diverse modes of being or through some essential difference. To make the case that if being is univocal, being is divided by essential differences, Fauriansis observes that being is predicated quantitatively of the diverse species of substance, such as human and horse, which agree in mode of being, but are divided by essential differences. Put another way, even if being is divided only through intrinsic modes into substance and quantity, being would still be divided by differences essential to the essence of a species, when animal is divided by rational into human and non-human because being is predicated quiditatively both of animal and of the species of animal and animals divided by differences essential to its species. In which case, if being is univocal, then being would meet both the abstraction condition and the essential difference condition and it would be a genus in relation to the species through which the categories themselves undergo their divisions. Peroriensis gives another argument that appeals to the distinction between essence and existence in creatures, but I pass over it here to avoid the need to address Scotus's rejection of that distinction. Accordingly, Peroriensis indicates that the Scotists should abandon either A, the doctrine that being is said univocally across the categories in the divide of finite and infinite being, or B, abandon the doctrine that being is not a genus. <coughs> I am not aware of a direct response from follower of Scotus to Ferraransis's argument here. The argument invites consideration into what common ground there is between Scotus and the Thomas over whether every univocal really does abstract a form that is abstractable from all the univicated things, and therefore into whether Scotus's own understanding of univicals requires that all univicals, whether logical or metaphysical, meet the abstraction condition for being a genus. On this point, I note Scotus's own definition of a univocal concept as one that has A, sufficient unity to ground a contradiction, and B, has sufficient unity to serve as a term in a syllogism without the fallacy of equivocation. This definition avoids the question of whether there is any unity of form, nature, or essence between the things named univocally, in direct contrast to the definition of univocity inspired by Aristotle's definition in the categories with which Oriensis begins his commentary on Summa Gentiles 132. So perhaps the being or other perfections that are abstractable from God and creatures are not, on Scotus's own account, common forms or natures at all. Indeed, Scotus's own direct rejection of metaphysical univocity between God and creatures, in which he affirms that they have no res in common, suggests that Scotus would deny that his understanding of univocity would meet Oriances's abstraction condition for a genus. On the other hand, Scotus does affirm that being is said quantitatively about God and creatures, as well as differences other than ultimate differences. In which case, to say that something is a being is to say something about what it is. And it seems to follow that if one is saying something about what something is, then one is predicating a form, nature, or essence of that thing. Further inquiry into Scotus's semantics of being is required to verify or absolve him of Ariensis' critique. Another point to consider about Fauriansis' commentary in the predicables argument is whether it involves him in demanding that the predicables argument itself prove more than it does prove or is even intended to prove. As I have argued above, the predicables argument only attempts to show that a name cannot be predicated of God and creatures in such a way as to express metaphysical univocity. But Scotus himself does not attribute metaphysical univocity between God and creatures. On the contrary, Scotus explicitly denies it in many passages. So it is not clear that there is any genuine dispute between Thomas and Scotus in either the premises or the conclusion of the predicable's argument. Now, what about the simplicity argument? Ferrariensis reports the simplicity argument as follows Nothing is simpler than God, not even conceptually, therefore, etc. The proof of the consequence is that what is predicated univocally about many things is at least conceptually simpler than them." End quote. His commentary on the argument begins by examining the premise that whatever is predicated univocally is at least conceptually simpler than the things of which it is predicated. Specifically, Periansis considers why something that is predicated univocally would be conceptually simpler than the things of which it is predicated. Well, something predicated equivocally or analogously would not be. The importance of this discussion rests upon the otherwise plausible objection that if Aquinas's simplicity argument proves anything, then it proves too much for Aquinas's purposes. Not only would the argument exclude naming God and creatures univocally, it would also exclude naming God and creatures analogously. Ferrariensis accordingly accepts the burden of showing what it is about univocals, as such, that renders a univocal simpler than that of which it is predicated univocally—that is, its inferiors in contrasts to analogs and equivocals. This brings me to text three on your handout. (coughs) On why univocals must be simpler than their univocates, that is, on why a univocal term must be simpler than the things about which it is predicated, Fariensis writes, for a univocal is contracted to its inferiors through something added, just as animal is contracted by rational to human and human to socrates through individuating principles therefore it is necessary that the univocal itself expresses something simpler than the univocates since the univocated include the very univocal and they add something to its ratio and quote there must be some difference between the things named univocally that is the univocates Otherwise, it fails to be a name, set of many, and is not a common name at all. So the things named univocally must be what they are named univocally plus something else. In the case of individuals of the same species, the plus something else is their individuating differences. In the case of things that do not agree in lowest species, there is besides their individuating difference a plus something else to their ratio. Since even lowest species are conceptually complex, including their genus and their difference, univocal predication presupposes conceptually complex things, of which the univocal is either a component part of the ratio or the whole complex ratio, as in the case of the lowest species. Since God lacks a complex ratio, both in reality and conceptually, nothing can be predicated univocally about God and creatures. What about equivocals and analogs? Do either of them require that their inferiors be at least conceptually complex? Bariensis says no, and this takes me to text number four on the handout. He writes, but an equivocal and an analog that express many rationes insofar as they are one by proportion, which is called an analog properly by the Greeks, is not simpler than each analogate or equivocate. Indeed, the analog or equivocal is more composed for it does not express one nature common to its inferiors, to which the inferiors add something, but rather it expresses many natures immediately, and it is compared to each one of its inferiors as many to one. For dog expresses many things, namely a terrestrial animal, a marine fish, and a celestial star. But marine fish expresses only one of these, and therefore dog is not a simpler quid than marine fish. To the contrary, It is as though more composed. Whereas we saw previously that univocals are contracted to their inferiors by a difference that adds something conceptually to the univocal, or the univocals express an already conceptually complex ratio of a species which is contracted to particulars by individuating differences, we see here that an equivocal immediately signifies many things and is thereby inherently complex. Fish, Taken as a univocal, only signifies the nature of fish. But dog, taken as an equivocal, signifies both the nature of a fish and the nature of a land animal, etc. Furiansis does not provide any examples to illustrate the complexity of the analog, or the analogous term. But it is not difficult to show how standard scholastic examples agree with his claim. The analogous term healthy immediately signifies urine, food, exercise, and an animal through diverse concepts. Since these analogates do not share in a common nature that is abstracted from and common to all, but instead only have their unity through the diverse relations of their proper rationes to the ratio of the health of an animal, it follows that healthy, taken as an analog, is more complex than healthy, taken univocally, as signifying either only the health property urine, or the health property to food, or to an animal, etc. Likewise, the ratio of seeing, taken as analogous to the activity of the intellect and the activity of the sense of sight, is more composite than the ratio of seeing as conceived properly of the intellect's activity or of the sense of sight's activity. Having established that an analog is more complex than its analogates, whereas a univocal is simpler than its univocates, Fariensis turns to the issue of names that have gotten creatures and he concludes, quote, it follows that It follows that, although we affirm that God is being, excuse me, although we affirm that being is common to God and creatures, it is not necessary that it is simpler than God. For we do not affirm that it is a univocal, as though it were one ratio expressing a thing common to God and creatures, but we affirm that it is an analog and that it expresses many things immediately, end quote. Since the ratio of being, insofar as being is common to God and creatures, is one only by a unity of analogy, it signifies the divine nature and creature immediately. Just as healthy as analogous signifies both urine and an animal immediately, or seeing as analogous signifies both an intellectual activity and a sensory activity immediately. Accordingly, the analogously common ratio is conceptually more complex than the ratio under which God's being would be conceived properly. And Aquinas' simplicity argument against the evocal predication of names about God and creatures does not undermine his doctrine that they can be predicated by analogy. Faurianzus' consideration of the simplicity argument does not stop there, but it continues on to address a doubt about the premise that nothing can be simpler than God, either in reality or conceptually. The doubt arises from a principle that, as Ferrariensis observes, Aquinas himself articulates at De Veritate, Question 1, Article 1, namely that, quote, being is what is simpler conceptually, since all conceptions of the intellect are taken from addition to being, end quote. To address the doubt, Ferrariensis makes a distinction between two ways in which something can be conceptually simpler than another. And uh, this is uh, text 5, the last text I have for you on the handout and I'm gonna be going back and forth to the text here in text five. Quote, it is said that something can be simpler than another conceptually in two ways. In one way, it can be conceptually simpler from the condition of the thing itself. In the other way, from the condition of the intellect of the one understanding. Francis explains the first of these two ways as follows. Something is conceptually simpler than another from the condition of the thing when one thing has in itself that whereby it is conceived by simple concept, but the other has that whereby it ought to be conceived by a composite concept. Regarding the other way, he explains that something is conceptually simpler than another from the part of the intellect, when the intellect due to its weakness is not able to comprehend in one concept a thing that is simply conceivable and by a unique simple concept, and therefore it forms diverse concepts about it of which one relates to the other by addition. Applying the twofold ways of being conceptually simpler to the case of being said of God and creatures, he argues, therefore, being, with respect to the one imperfect concept which it expresses, about which more will be said below, is not simpler than God conceptually from the condition of the thing itself, but from the imperfection of our intellect forming a concept of God by addition to the concept of being, because it does not see him according to what he is in himself. Our intellect's conception of being is simpler than our intellect's concept concept of God inasmuch as our intellect is incapable of seeing God as God is in himself, which leaves the intellect to form its concept of God through additions to the concept that it can form of being. Ferrariensis goes on to observe that if the human intellect did form an adequate concept of the divine essence, then that concept would be most simple, just as God is most simple. Accordingly, when Aquinas says that nothing is conceptually prior to God, Aquinas means that nothing is simpler in the first way of being simpler, that is, from the side of the thing itself, rather than in the second way of being simpler, that is, from the part of the intellect of the one understanding. So what is the argument here? The major premise of the simplicity argument is that all things are predicated univocally of two or more things are at least conceptually simpler than the things of which they are predicated. Ferriensis attempts to prove the major by explaining that univocals are contracted to their inferiors by an addition. Hence, their inferiors must be more complex conceptually than the univocals inasmuch as the, uh, the inferiors contain the univocal plus the addition. Ferrariensis wards off the objection that this premise could also be affirmed about analogues on the grounds that an analog does not express a nature common to inferiors and contracted by differences. Rather, the analog signifies the, each of the analogates immediately and each commonly by a composition involving either an attribution of either one to another, as in the case of the healthy animal and the healthy urine, or of two proportions to each other, as in the case of sensory seeing and intellectual seeing. The minor premise is that nothing can be simpler than God, either in its reality or conceptually. Ariensis addresses the objection that being is conceptually most simple, not God, with the distinction between being simpler on the side of the intellect versus being simpler on the side of the thing. The intellect's concept of being is indeed simpler than its concept of God, but that is only because the intellect is incapable of grasping God's nature and being in an adequate concept, a concept that would abstract from the divine nature itself. If it could do that, then the concept of God would indeed be simpler than the diverse concepts of created beings which the intellect composes and divides in order to signify God imperfectly and inadequately. At this point, Berriensis' argument hinges on what it is for a concept to be inadequate. As promised, Berriensis addresses this issue in his commentary on Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 1, Chapter 34. The context within, this, within his commentary on that chapter is provided by the intertomist debate over whether being and other names set of God and creatures express only one concept or not. Fariensis reports that according to some Thomists, being and likewise other names said analogously about God and creatures, expresses one formal or mental concept that is separate, praecisum in Latin, from the concepts of the other things. Although it does not express an objective concept that is one and separate, but only one by analogy. On the other hand, Quote, other Thomists hold that being does not express one adequate mental concept that is separate, praecisum, from the concepts of its inferiors, just as it does not express one objective concept, rather just as it expresses the very analogates insofar as they are one by proportion or similar, in the same way it expresses all the mental concepts of the analogates insofar as they are one concept proportionally. End quote. The distinction between mental or formal concepts and objective concepts is a standard one among Thomas at the time of Ferrancis's writing. It's also been explained a few times in this conference. It dates back at least as far as Herveus Natalis among Thomist authors, plays a prominent role in the account of analogy provided by Capriolis and by Ferrancis's co- contemporary, Thomas de Vio Cajetan, and arguably it has a precursor in Thomas Aquinas's distinction between the ratio in the soul and the ratio in things. In each case, the distinction is made by Thomas to address arguments from Scotus that there is sufficient conceptual unity between God and creatures for logical univocity, even though there is no real univocity between God and creatures. In response to Scotus, Thomas argued that univocal predication requires a strict unity, both for the formal concept by which the name signifies and of the objective concept signified. That is, univocity requires A, that the intellect signifies its object through only one concept that it has generated, and B, that the object that it is signifying is a nature shared by the things named. In the dispute between the Thomists, Oriensis sides with those who hold that the mental or formal concept of being as set of God and creatures is not a separate concept from the proper concepts of God and creatures. That is, it is not a third concept above the concepts of creaturely being and divine being. Rather, the name being as predicated of God and creatures signifies through the formal concepts proper to each insofar as they have proportional unity among themselves. For Fauriensis, the Thomists who can see a separate formal concept of being and other names said of God and creatures grant to Scotus that such names are logically univocal, even if they would fall short of metaphysical univocity. As Fauriensis puts it, Quote, unity of the mental concept suffices for logical unification, end quote. Ferrariensis finds grounds for his position in what he supposes to be a work of St. Thomas, the treatise De Natura Generis. According to this treatise, the genus of substance divides into species which lack real agreement. And here I have a a quotation from Ferrariensis describing the position that he finds in De Natura Generis. Quote, there is no real agreement between material substances and separate substances, but the intellect gathers an intention from the diverse things, and the concept is applied by the intellect to the nature of both. And so, according to Dana De- 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 Torgeneris, the agreement of material and immaterial substances is only in the conception of the intellect. And nevertheless, the name substance is univocal to material and immaterial substances, otherwise it would not be a genus. Therefore, unity of the mental concept alone suffices for unification, and I speak of logical unification, end quote. Although it is doubtful whether De Natura, De Natura Generis is written by Aquinas, the account that Ferriensis' reports from this text is consistent with the position found in authentic works of Aquinas on merely logical univocity, and on there being no common genus of material and immaterial substances, or of corruptible and incorruptible bodies. If the things themselves do not in fact share a generically common nature, then the concept or intention through which the intellect signifies both as though they did have a common nature, as though they did agree in that intention, is something made by the intellect rather than something genuinely discovered by the intellect about the natures of the things signified by the name. Returning to being as common to God and creatures or across the categories, a perfect and adequate formal concept of being would not only be predicated of all beings, but would also represent perfectly the nature of a thing signified by the name being, primarily and per se. Ferrariensis denies that there is any such concept of being, maintaining to the contrary that being expresses immediately the concept of each one of the individual categories insofar as they are one by likeness and proportion with respect to their essay. As a dialectical engagement with SCOTUS, Ferrariensis' defense of the simplicity argument overlooks SCOTUS's opinion that analogy always reduces to univocity or equivocation. SCOTUS could counter that, despite Fauriansis' claims that an analog is more composite than its inferiors, the simplicity argument still proves too much for Aquinas' purposes. SCOTUS agrees that analogs are composite. If two analogs share one of the parts out of which they are composed in common, then the analogs reduce to unification in that shared part. And if they lack a common part, then the analogs reduce to equivocation. Accordingly, if an analog reduces to equivocation, then... Aquinas' doctrine of analogy fails to preserve demonstration in either philosophical or real theology. If analogy reduces to unification, then Aquinas' doctrine of analogy fails to meet the standards of the simplicity argument or consistency with divine simplicity. I do not find in Ferrariansis' commentary indications that he is aware of Scotus' doctrine that analogy reduces to one of equivocation or unification there is no more suitable place than Summa Contra Gentile's Book 1, Chapter 34, for him to have addressed the issue in his commentary. Still, Ferrariensis' discussion of the conditions for membership in a genus indicate a path towards answering an objection on such grounds. Even if the definitions of healthy as signifying medicine and an animal overlap, insofar as the healthiness of an animal falls in the definition of the healthiness of the medicine, the healthiness of an animal is not abstracted from both as a nature common to both. This suffices to show that the reduction to univocity could be at most a reduction to merely logical univocity, which is indeed enough for SCOTUS. But it is also the rejection of logical univocity for a Thomist. Logical genera are divided by differences into species and logical species into individuals by individual differences, as Ferrancis explains. Neither of these ways of dividing apply to healthy as analogous to an animal in medicine. Hence, there is not even logical unification between them, even by reduction. Yet again, however, this line of response points towards a more basic disagreement between Scotus and the Thomists. For Scotus, any sharing of conceptual content suffices for logical univocity, whereas for the Thomists, even a logical univocity requires that the intellect gathers its intention from the nature of each of the inferiors, as when both material and separate substances are called substances, and when both corruptible and incorruptible bodies are called bodies. Pushed to this point, I can think of no more suitable response for Forancis to give than the one uttered by the early 15th century Dominican, John Caprilis when confronting the position that any overlap in conceptual content is sufficient for univocity. And he said, quote, what I call analogous, you call univocal, end quote. Conclusion. Thomas Aquinas' predicables and simplicity arguments reason from the divine simplicity to the doctrine that talking about God depends upon analogy between God and creatures. This paper has argued that the predicables argument shows only the incompatibility of the divine simplicity with metaphysical univocity, and that the simplicity argument makes the stronger claims that even logical univocity is incompatible with the divine simplicity. Francis Silvestri of Ferrara defends both arguments in his commentary in the Summa Contra Gentiles, in the case of the Predicable's argument, Ferriensis attempts to show that if being were univocal, then it would have to be a genus through consideration of two cons- conditions for being a genus. This approach serves the dialectical purpose of addressing John Dunn Scotus who maintains that being is univocal and yet not a genus. And as much as Scotus himself holds that being is only logically univocal, Ferriensis's argument addresses the position of Scotus who departed from Scotus's position, which we heard about yesterday, more than they address the position of Scotus himself. Ferroianzus makes a greater contribution to the debate between the schools of Aquinas and Scotus in his treatment of the simplicity argument through the account that he provides of why an analogous term is conceptually more complex than its inferiors, while a univocal term is conceptually more simple than its inferiors, a point that Thomas himself left altogether unaddressed. He likewise makes makes a contribution here through his explanation of the distinction between an adequate and an inadequate formal or mental concept. Here too, however, the dialectical engagement with SCOTUS leaves Ferroianzis open to the charge of a lack of familiarity with SCOTUS's own position. Specifically with SCOTUS's view that analogy always reduces to either eunobosity or equivocity. Nonetheless... So provides his reader with principles for how he could respond to SCOTUS up to the point where the philosophical differences between the schools become merely verbal differences and what one school calls univocal, the other calls analogous. Thank you and I look forward to your, your feedback.